Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinot. And we are excited to be back talking about mindfulness and mental training and performance. And today we have another wonderful guest with us, Dr. Dan Zimmett. Yeah, Dr. Zimmett is a licensed psychologist and CMPC, or sports psychologist, with 20 years of experience in private practice. His clinical work focuses on adolescents to adults, as well as couples and families. Uh, he is the founder and president of MACSAP, which is a mid-Atlantic consortium of sport and performance psychology. Uh, he's the principal investigator on a research study of the retirement experience of elite athletes and a 31-time national master's champion in handball. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. We are super psyched to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you guys uh, respecting my opinion enough to even talk to me. (laughs) Well, with that list of credentials, I think you're qualified for sure. Um, And Dan was going to lead us today in our exercise, our little meditation. Yes. And as usual, uh, you know, make sure if you're going to follow through with this exercise to do it in an environment that's conducive. So if Dan suggests you close your eyes, don't do that while you're driving. Yeah. So, um, you know, my experience with athletes and really with stress and anxiety as a whole, uh, breath is probably one of the central places where you can address the tumultuous experience of feeling off balance. And so having some kind of breathing exercise to regulate that uh, experience, I think, really connects to the body and allows you to develop a good frame of mind, calm some of your systems down. Uh, There's a few different exercises that I suggest. Uh, I'm going to use the one that's kind of in the middle. Athletes will perform either a single breath or or sometimes three breaths as a way of calming themselves in performance. And then, of course, there's longer meditations, which would be 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, Rather than take the time for that, I suggest a four-minute exercise for breathing. Um, I use this with almost all of my clients, uh, both athletes and otherwise. Um, And it's a little bit different than other ones uh, because I add a physical component. So the way that uh, I construct it is I have a one-minute stretching exercise where really you stand up and you move all of your parts. I think that we are way too sedentary. A lot of our uh, systems get locked in place when we're just sitting down and not really moving. So I really enjoy having that stretching component which is not organized per se. It's just making sure every muscle and every joint gets stretched. And then for three minutes, I do a calming breathing exercise. And uh, I'll walk you through the breathing exercise now. Usually I do an explanation uh, followed by actually doing the breathing in my office, which might feel a little bit strange to sit in front of somebody uh, for three minutes in silence, but that in itself is actually a good experience. So what I ask people to do is find a position in their chair where their skeleton is fully balanced. You should feel as though your posture requires as little muscle tone as possible. You want your feet flat on on the floor, Uh, Your knees should be slightly flexed, your spine, which is, I think, to me, the most important part. You want an upright posture, 
uh, an analogy that um, one of my colleagues gave is you want to feel like you can run, you're running a cord straight through your spine as though uh, the bottom of your spine was gripped and connected to a weight, like it's pulling you, your pelvic floor straight down. Uh, if you have a slumped posture um, or you're overly pronated, it's not going to be conducive. So you want to have your head up, your arms uh, balanced. Your arms are surprisingly heavy, so it's best to have them either flat on your lap or if you have arms on your chair. And then the breathing itself, uh, there's no right or wrong way in my mind to do it. You want to allow your breathing to take its natural course. Uh, I found if people try to control their breathing too much, they either breathe too slowly, and that can make you in some ways feel dizzy or lightheaded, uh, or they can breathe too fast. You want a nice, peaceful, rhythmic breathing. Uh, for people who have trouble with meditation, uh, I ask them to focus on their breath. There's a start that they experience and then a flow through it. Uh, there's the transition from inhale to exhale uh, and then a restart. And by concentrating on the breath itself, it can give the di uh, direction of thought um, because I feel in a mindfulness exercise, you really want to have an empty mind. You want to be quiet with yourself, uh, blank. And it's a difficult state to reach. A lot of people, I think, find that when they have a moment of peace with themselves, they get into planning their next day or wondering what they're gonna eat for their next meal. Uh, they start contemplating conversations they're gonna have or, or maybe dwelling on conversations they already had. That's the last thing you wanna do with this exercise. Uh, there's a number of different ways of trying to keep an empty mind. Um, thunk, thinking about drifting in and out of um, like bubbles floating by or like wind passing through. You can fill your mind with something. You don't have to keep your eyes closed or open. Some people who have uh, trouble with this will find a focal point. Uh, the sun passing through a plant uh, would be one um, you could utilize as a way of giving your mind a direction. Uh, there's no right or wrong to how you do that. It's however you find the quietest space in your head. So for the first minute, I stand up. Uh, I usually start with the legs. I just bend fully, um, you know, sort of shake my feet out and flex my knees, roll my back. Uh, as a person who's rapidly approaching 50 like a freight train, getting my back loose is important. I roll my neck around. Uh, and my shoulders, a good minute of, of just getting your body moving. Uh, to me, that's actually sometimes better than the breathing exercise itself, particularly since I have a sedentary job. Uh, and then I, I have my timer. Uh, you don't want to focus on time. So I set it for four minutes, do the one minute breathing exercise, uh, one minute stretch, excuse me, uh, and then the three minute breathing exercise. And like I said, I'll just do it with my clients. I'll, I'll have them find that comfortable posture uh, and then ask them to be quiet in their mind and tell them not to worry about the time. Let the alarm do the work uh, and work on having an empty space for the three minutes. Uh, and then once that time is done, I find it's, uh, it's like time has sort of changed the way that it flows. Things seem a little slower, things a little quieter within. I don't feel that rushed, frenetic pace that can sometimes come from the way life works. Uh, it gives you a feeling of having more time to be able to do things, uh, kind of a slow down experience. And that's really what you're going for. 
uh, when it comes to coping with anxiety or stress is finding that space where your tempo is now slowed uh, and you're not getting your in your own way for moving your life forward. Cool. So I, I don't know if, if you can convey this in this format on a podcast, but can you give a couple examples of, of sort of instructions for stretches for anybody who might be listening who wanted to try a, a moment or two or a couple of different um, examples of that? Like you, you mentioned, um, you know, certainly with posture, something that you might instruct, but do you just leave it to people to do their own thing or are there certain stretches you like them to try in doing this exercise? So with the stretching, I just really don't feel like there's any organized way you need to do it. Uh, it's not like you're training to, uh, you know, be on the football field. I feel like you want to elongate all of the muscles uh, and you want to get all of your joints moving freely. So I just start with a full deep knee bend. Uh, so a couple of kind of squats. Um, and then I sort of shake my legs out. I roll my hips, sort of twist my back back and forth. Uh, not overdoing it. This isn't about getting maximum posture. You know, we're not in a yoga class. It's really about getting blood flow, um, allowing the muscles their free range because they're so fixed in place when you're seated all of the time. Um, I do pinwheels with my arms, just roll my head around. Um, it, it's, it's really just what feels right to you. And I think that's the truth for the entire exercise is it's really finding the comfort zone for yourself, uh, including with the breathing exercise. Some people breathe slower, some people breathe faster. I know that a lot of people will use counting or they'll tell you, you want to breathe as slowly as you can. Um, I find that people find their own rhythm. It even changes throughout the span of doing the exercise itself. And by over-controlling it, I think that creates the focus that you're trying to get away from. I think you're looking to be really fully physically and mentally present and allowing that process to occur without controlling it as part of the experience. Yeah, it's so interesting. and. Uh, I know when we do MSPE workshops, trainings, one of the big ideas that we convey is there's not a right or wrong way to do this kind of practice. And I'm just curious when you do this with a client like the first time, um, and, and I love the way you're describing, you just sort of leave it open and let them figure out how they want to do it. If that's something people have resistance to or feel uncomfortable with, you know, before they can get to that, that relaxation perhaps, or let go of some of that anxiety, if, if, they're feeling vulnerable or if they're feeling uncertain of what they're supposed to do. Yeah, what's interesting is I found I actually get a lot less of that than I would have thought. The resistance that I get is people not being as willing to do it on their own, uh, not giving themselves permission to take four minutes out of their lives uh, to do one of these exercises. I think with particularly an athlete population, uh, who are so used to being coached and told the way that they need to run their lives, when they're sitting with someone who is telling them to do something, that's a very easy task. Uh, they're completely up for that. But when you make it much more open and you give them control of it, particularly the time of doing it since their lives are often uh, so filled, I think they struggle with that more so. Uh, with the people who are, who are anxious, they have a lot of trouble letting go of thought and allowing themselves just to be quiet. I think their minds run a little like a machine, constantly churning out parts. Uh, and the idea of uh, wasting time for some 
or of just being empty or blank with themselves can be a little bit difficult. You wanna be thoughtful with trauma clients in these regards because in these quiet moments, they can get intrusive thoughts. And part of the way that they cope is keeping themselves constantly busy. So that is always something that I ask and, and look for before I do one of these exercises because it can evoke a lot of strong feelings when you're alone with yourself. Yeah, and I, that's something that I feel I, I try to be really mindful of too with um, with people that have trauma histories. And so I find myself, you know, I'll still do these kind of breathing exercises with them or mindfulness exercises, but I, I, I really focus on external anchors rather than internal anchors. Um, and maybe I'll do a more active kind of a meditation like involve counting, give their mind something to do. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right for a lot of people, even if they don't have trauma histories, sitting there in the silence, stuff bubbles up. Sometimes stuff that they did not want to be sitting with or want to be thinking about or want to be feeling. Um, so we, I mean, so we've certainly experienced that kind of resistance to people just not, not willing to really carve that time out outside of meetings, outside of sessions to, to sit and do this, do this work. Yeah. So with people who, uh, clients who I feel it's particularly important for, I will do it at each meeting. Um, and it's great because then I get to do it myself. And yeah. that, that's actually very helpful. It's sort of cheating, I suppose. Um, for people who have a lot of trouble just being quiet with their um, with themselves, sometimes I'll give them words that are suggestive of that state of mind, and I'll have them just repeat those words. So that could be peace, quiet, silence, serenity, uh, would be some of the words that I'll have people, uh, they'll use whichever ones they gravitate towards. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll say it's okay to repeat those words in your mind um, and then give spaces in between. Uh, you know, so the longer the space, the better. But if you feel like you're drifting into something that is not the space that you're wanting, repeat one or a few of these words until you feel your back. But yeah, that I, that concept of permission, giving them permission, giving themselves permission, um, feels really important because I do, I do think athletes in particular, but people in general, like like you were saying, and I just carry around all these shoulds, all this like oh this there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it and these are these are the instructions that I follow, uh, and so I mean, we certainly get that all the time. People being like there's a there's a right way to meditate and a wrong way to meditate and I should be thinking this or I shouldn't be thinking that. Um, Why can't my mind be quiet? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's very true. I also think when people f consider the concept of coping strategies, they're expecting to be do something very active. I need to be exercising. I need to be problem solving. I need to be talking to people. And the idea of being with yourself in a space of absence doesn't sound like you're doing anything. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually the most important thing that you can do because on the far side of it, everything becomes more clear. Yes. I think a lot of, uh, when talking about this, um, a couple of years ago, the, the Time Magazine cover story on the mindful revolution, mm. and one of the, the first points that was made in that article was how people are looking for relaxation. They're looking to slow down. They're looking for escape. And yet the very thing that might bring it Right, this idea of stillness, this idea of quiet, just inviting four minutes of just being with your body, being with your mind, that it's it's threatening in some ways. That that people don't want to do exactly what what could be most helpful. We want to relax, but we don't want to necessarily slow down. We don't want to stop. There's too much judgment around yeah. that. No, I think that's extremely true. I I, I find that 
sometimes you can trick people into things. So one of my favorite <laughs> exercises is to ask, um, what do you find the, to be the most peaceful thing that you're aware of? And then I'll have them imitate that as the exercise. Mm. So um, in my office, what I'll say is I find I have a number of plants in my office. I, I find the concept of a tree or a plant to be very peaceful. Here's a living object whose entire objective can be boiled down to a few different things. It's you breathe, you take in nourishment, you grow. And so to have that kind of a mindset and just pretend you're a tree for three minutes. Uh, you could even do it standing if you wanted to. I find that really works with kids who oh. might say like their pet cat uh, would be something that would be. I'm like, all right, so for three minutes you're going to be a cat in a state of complete peace and serenity. Uh, and I find that that can sometimes oh. work. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I like that a lot. Because I mean, this is something that we think about and talk about a lot. About like how do you how do you meet people where they're at? Um, because there are are some people that just they're gonna hear the word mindfulness and have an immediate negative reaction or the word compassion or whatever. Um, and so it's like how do you frame these exercises? How do you get people to buy in? And I do think that mindfulness is such an experiential thing. And it's like you can explain it, you can talk about the research, but if someone doesn't have the experience of how it impacts them they're probably not going to pick up the practice. And so figuring out a way to give them the experience while bypassing whatever kind of negative assumptions or connotations they have about it, I think is just such a such an important piece of the work. And I'm always curious to hear about how people do it. I really I really like that idea of a, a, a peaceful object. Well, something that, that was so interesting to us about you and, and one of the main reasons we wanted to talk to you is you're not only a mental health provider, a, a sports psychologist, but you're also a professional athlete. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that side. Um, but even before getting there, I'm wondering if you think being an athlete yourself has informed some of this creativity that you're talking about, especially the incorporation of movement. Um, and, and if maybe there's any association or if you think maybe that's unrelated. I, I'm just curious about that. I, I absolutely think there's a relation there. I, I think in any type of activity, and that includes just working at a computer, you're connected deeply to your breathing and your state of mind. Um, your performance is dependent on it. And I think people are not necessarily as aware of that as they need to be. Uh, I think athletes in particular are very attuned to the fact that there's times where they have it and then there's times where they don't. And the part of that that you can most control is your state of mind and your breath. Um, and so I think that those are places where you start to intervene because if you're relaxed, you're open, you're fully present, you're allowing yourself to be with an activity rather than living outside of the present, fear of outcome, concern of embarrassment or humiliation, worry about negative past experiences and similar circumstances, all of that negatively impacts performance. Uh, and I think that that's true for many things. So being able to learn the mindfulness ritual of allowing yourself to be in a moment independent of any space that is to come or has already come I think that you're very right, Tim, that that's something you have. It's a little bit difficult to know until you know it. And getting to that state of knowing is an experience. Um, 
it's a little bit like the joy of being able to effectively play an instrument, but I think people really understand you're not going to get there without a lot of practice. With some sports, I feel like you get rewards along the way that keep you engaged, and so you're more likely to get to that expertise because uh, you know the worse of a golfer you are, the more likely you are to hit that one good shot because you have over a hundred opportunities. Um, I think that with the mindfulness breathing, there is immediate feedback of, oh, that felt really good. Then what? Uh, so in my practice, I find that then what is I harass them mercilessly about it. <laughs> uh, and that sometimes really gets them there. Yeah. Uh, and so with certain clients of mine who, who know its significance, they report to me its helpfulness. I'll start our sessions and I'll end our sessions with the four-minute exercise uh, or whatever exercise they come up with because sometimes they'll report back to me that there's certain things they find mm -hmm. are more or less helpful. Uh, for some, three minutes seems interminable. Uh, I picked three minutes because to me that's the minimal amount of time you need for some of your nervous system responses to start to react to the quietness. Um, yeah, you can control your heart rate pretty quick. Obviously, you can control your breathing qu pretty quick. But some of those deeper systems require a little more time. Mm -hmm. Three minutes, I think, is even too little. But it's as much as I'm willing to ask of them during a paid session mm -hmm. where they're writing a check for each minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Um, yeah, I, and feel free to, to decline this invitation, but any examples you can share of that, of some of the more creative things, anything that jumps out to you that a client has done or, or someone you're consulting with where you said people have done their own thing and you've gone with that. So any ideas you can, you can share? Yeah, so I guess a couple of examples. Probably the one that I expected the least was uh, someone who used mindfulness in prayer and so whenever he was at church or doing nightly prayers, he would add mindfulness to that. And it allowed him to just get more out of the experience of connecting to God. I would have never thought of suggesting that, even though I knew he was a deeply religious and spiritual person. So that was very interesting, and, and um, I liked hearing that. Um, another example of, of creativity uh, this person is not an athlete, is someone who was recovering from um, a traffic accident that had left him uh, very in a lot of physical pain and trying to overcome fears about his future. And three minutes was not nearly enough for him. And he's somebody who took to sometimes 20 or 30 minute meditations and um, they really helped him be able to cope. He learned through that experience how to get to that place in his mind that offered him peace much more quickly, but only if he did that each day. And so he only needed about 30 seconds on a hourly, whenever he was feeling off. Uh, but by doing the 20, 25 minutes every day, it kept him really keyed into that state of mind so he could get there much more quickly just on the routine times of a day where he was feeling anxious or worried. And I thought that was kind of unique. It's this concept that you don't need to sit and do a long exercise every time. If you know the place you're trying to reach, you can find it much quicker 
as long as you do the work mm-hmm. at other times. Yeah, I think that's so important and something we talk about a lot in, in our writing and in our work is doing the daily practice, getting a dose. If, if you're an athlete in a high-performance situation or experiencing an acute anxiety reaction for, for any situation, to have that foundation is, is so important. The, the analogy we use in our book is if, if you don't have that foundation and you try to pull it out like a tool in the moment, it's like trying to learn how to swim while you're already drowning. Yeah. And, and so it sounds like this is a great example of that. Someone who built that foundation does that practice and then when he has a moment where he really needs to self-regulate, that, that he's able to do that relatively quickly. It can take him a couple of seconds, but that's because he does the, the daily practice for 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, and I think the real-life parallels outside or inside of sport are everywhere. You're going to talk to someone who makes you a little nervous. You're asked to say something at a meeting. Uh, you're going to drive over the Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. uh, or you're going to take a free throw in front of a bunch of people. Are you going to play a silly game and maybe act a little goofy? Some people get really anxious about acting goofy. Uh, you can have access to that if you've done the work because you know the place where you're trying to reach. But you're right. It's, it's a little bit, to me, the analogy I use is without all of the work, you can't just step up and run a marathon. Yeah. Uh, but if you do the work, you your body will endure that type of rigor. And you have to practice your way into having the tools yeah yeah i love that yeah Yeah. and it's but it's always so amazing to me how i mean because this is just such a fundamental concept that athletes definitely get when it comes to physical training like they know about the importance of preparation they know they know what the impact on their performance would be if they only practice once a week but they just don't apply the same logic to mental training Uh, at least that's certainly what we've found um but yeah, I don't know. If, and coaches, not just yeah. athletes. Well, yeah. I think that when it comes to many of the physical skills, there's a there's a building process where they accumulate on each other. And you don't necessarily have to do the constant maintenance because in some ways your ability has moved past that. And you might be rehearsing some of those earlier types mm-hmm. of skills. They don't extinguish that fast. I think these mental training extinguishes quickly. I feel like you have to really stay on top of it. So to me, it operates more like conditioning than skills training. Mm -hmm. Uh, And using that as the metaphor with athletes, you have, uh, when it comes to sport performance, you have your skills, you have your conditioning, and then you have your state of mind or mental abilities. And I feel like conditioning is a great example of mental skills because it requires constant work or it begins to extinguish rapidly. Uh, the advantage in sport of high conditioning to me is much more readily apparent. And so it's easier for athletes to connect to because they know if my strength isn't there, if my conditioning isn't there, the feedback is immediate. There's no faking any of that mm-hmm. in sports. I think that the mental parts are a little more ephemeral, and so it's a little bit more difficult to be able to look at it and see in maybe a moment-by-moment basis my mental skills were not there. It's typically only in hindsight when people are reflecting on a full uh, performance of why they were unsuccessful that they'll start to come up with these mental skills. But 
it's funny, I don't find that they necessarily have that same mentality when they jump back into training. Then it's back to conditioning and skills building. And yeah, the mental part tends to get more lip service. I think for many people, uh, they feel as though these are the types of things you should pick up organically mm -hmm. just through the experience of participating in something. They're not necessarily either teachable skills uh, or the types of things that are amenable to everybody mm -hmm. to be able to develop. Uh, of course, we know otherwise, and there's a lot of evidence suggesting that. Uh, but it's remarkable how often I'll even get paid to provide mental skills training, and then they'll substitute skills building or conditioning during that time rather than allow me to work with the athletes because they have a tournament or something coming up mm -hmm. where I would say, all right, they're ready. They, you've done the work. This is really the wind down time. Now is the most important time to have their minds in the right place. Uh, but that seems to be very difficult, I think, for many uh, coaches because I think they're so physically oriented. Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult yeah. for them to think in those terms. Well, and I think you're bringing up something really important. I talk about this all the time about the way that kind of coaches now have been self-selected in a way to be kind of not maybe not biased against mental training, but certainly not to fully understand its value because I think there are some athletes who kind of pick it up organically. Maybe they're more mentally resilient or, or more inclined to mindfulness or whatever it is. It's just something kind of that they that, that they adapt to and then they become successful athletes and those people go on to become coaches and they never needed mental training. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly remember my experiences on uh, crew teams and the coaches taking that mentality. I mean, the first two weeks of every season was to, to just try to kill us and whoever, whoever didn't quit was like strong enough to be on the team. Uh, and I just think about all the people who like didn't make it those through those two weeks at the beginning of each season and think like, wow, if they had had like a dedicated mental training, like could they have made it? Probably. They probably could have been successful, just as successful as me, if not more so. Um, and so the people who would have understood the value of mental training and then became a coach who understood the value of mental training, they just didn't have the opportunity. Yeah, I think coaches are in a very difficult position. I think being a coach is a very complex role. And most of the people who end up in coaching were athletes themselves and didn't really get training in mm -hmm. all of the things that they need to be able to do. And as a result of that, they're put in a high pressure situation with a bunch of wild animal athletes who, uh, and depending on the level that they're coaching, the pressure for success mm -hmm. is tremendously high. And their response to that stress, which is to me a very overwhelming proposition, because as a coach, you only have but so much control over how your athletes are going to perform, is typically very primitive. Uh, it's like a child having a tantrum, um, because the situation is one I don't think they were really trained to address. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just the mental skills that they're not trained on. They're not trained for sort of teaching skills of how you manage a group. Yeah. Uh, many of them are not formally trained even on the skills that they're utilizing because the coaches are often the most successful athletes where they picked up those skills very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Most teams are not composed of an entire group of people who have that type of 
easy skill development. But if you never had to break apart yeah. how you throw a ball, uh, you know how you, um, I mean, pick your athletic skill, mm -hmm. they, they never really had to understand the nuanced detail of all of that. How are they going to teach someone else? So the best skills teachers and coaches are actually the less skilled naturally athletes who probably didn't go as far as the hardworking ones who are also naturally talented, but went way further than they should have based on either natural grace or natural coordination, but they exceeded all of those things because of that minute understanding of the details. Mm -hmm. So if we had coaches who were willing to, I think, incorporate the lessons that teachers know, how do you manage groups of people? How do you best instruct? How do you inspire compliance? Um, how do you help bring out the best in people? Those are things you can absolutely learn and teachers have to know and they, they get a bachelor's degree in that. Coaches just walk in and are expected to be able to run a team. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's even more the case for mental skills because they, uh, coaches have watched previous coaches and what do you do? You emulate what you saw, you know, you had your role models. And so there's this generational progression of I think poor habits which I completely understand them using, mm -hmm. right? I mean, a, an ab child who was abused by their parent is much more likely to use abusive tactics in parenting themselves, even though they hated being abused. It's just what you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, I guess something I anecdotally notice, and, and we had the privilege to talk to a coach uh, last, last episode who I think is, is an exception, in a lot of ways, but but also something that's becoming increasingly more common, although it still is a, a minority in terms of people's use of of mental training, and and that it seems like it is becoming more a commonplace part of college athletics departments um, or professional franchises or systems. Um, I think there is some some now increased blending with clinical psychology as well, um, but I'm just curious too. Again, with your dual role as both an athlete. Um, and a, a psychologist, if you're seeing in your sport, for example, increased usage, um, even though there's still, as you're pointing out, a huge gulf um, in experience and, and access, if, if there is some silver lining here, if it seems like we're trending in a direction where, where there's some improvements. Well, I think that we're trending. My hope, and I can be accused accurately of being overly optimistic, uh, <laughs> is an increased awareness of the mental health needs of athletes and how important not just state of mind is towards sport performance, but the overall wellness and well-being of athletes, which transcends not just their sport performance, but their overall life quality and how important that is that athletes have their own mental health struggles and life stresses. They're actually, I think, more burdened uh, than the typical student, for instance, in college. So I think that there's been far more attention to the mental health of athletes. I think that there's some greater attention being paid to the um, benefits of having a mental skills trainer. I know that some of my work uh, I've had more contracts with that. People are more willing to spend money on it now. But having said that, I feel like the mental health piece 
for institutions like the ones you mentioned, the NBA um, and uh, collegiate uh, athletic programs, I, I think that their work, and I, I don't base this on anything more than random scatterings of data, is actually largely mental health work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's helping athletes and coaches with their relationships with each other. Uh, it's helping uh, athletes overcome stresses and burdens that might come from home uh, or from the burden of the expectations of their university uh, or from depression or addiction or helping athletes understand the tightrope that they run with their fame and how to best utilize their notoriety without putting themselves into profoundly compromising situations, but at the same time not isolating themselves. And that to me is kind of mental health work, Um, although it's profoundly unique to the athlete. And so for that reason, people who are trained in sports psychology, I think are well-versed to be able to do both but I wish that more people in sports psychology had the mental health training so that they would be able to really address all of those factors in a really deep way. Because uh, athletes are much deeper, richer, smarter people than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're, they are certainly not one-dimensional, right? That's the whole point in this push towards a more holistic approach to their training is that being an athlete is only one part of their identity right and they're impacted by all of these other factors in their life and it's one of the things that i really appreciate about the the mindfulness approach is that it it's about how you live your life not just about how you play your sport just playing your sport is part of that and i think it really does ripple out into all these other parts of their lives and becomes this really um this really powerful and sometimes really effective way to be in the world. Yeah, I think for the athlete, they really have to be able to do that themselves because everyone outside of them, and I think that this is only more true the further you go, treats you like you're a race pony. Mm-hmm. So I think there isn't any better example than in fantasy sports where people are bargaining sort of taking in players that they'll compete against other players and all they care about are your stats Mm -hmm. and so the further an athlete's athlete goes even the people who know them are in some ways using them consciously or sometimes unconsciously for their athletic prowess and if the athlete is not able to armor themselves against that one-dimensional approach I'm only as important or loved as my sport performance. If they can't armor themselves from that, they're in a lot of trouble, Mm -hmm. both within their sport, but particularly after they retire, uh, because their entire identity then ends up getting washed away. Every sycophant out there who was all over them while they were an active player suddenly drains away unless they want money. Um, And you're left in a very lonely experience where who you were is gone and the people who wanted to be around you are gone and that's a very treacherous place to be. So mindfulness to me is a good way of connecting with self for self-value, self-awareness and it acts as some of that armor. Yeah. 
And, you know, one of the reasons why I was really excited for for this episode, for us to talk, um, was because of your your experience in the field. I mean, you've been practicing for 20 years. And mindfulness uh, is, I mean, relatively new in terms of being kind of more popularly embraced in the sport psych field. So I'm just really curious to get your take on the evolution of that. You know, over these past 20 years, what have you seen and how was it that you came to embrace mindfulness? Well, yeah, mindfulness, I think you're right. It's it's one of those old things that became new again. Uh, and so the concept of being able to monitor and regulate breath has always been something that has been important to me in working with athletes. Although the idea of having it as a more prolonged exercise where you would do four to 30 minutes of um, protracted breathing, that is only something that I've added to my practice in the last maybe four or five years. And it was, to me, a, a um, an oversight that I regret now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I worked more with athletes on is having that single breath as either a trigger to start a routine or as a way of calming yourself when you begin a athletic performance. Um, and uh, Dr. Uh, McDuff, uses more of like the triple breath. And so I would talk about taking several deep breaths until you feel a quieting. Uh, And that was a ritual that I used myself as an athlete and that I would work with other athletes on having. But that to me is an entirely different aspect than where mindfulness came in. And reaching that place of calm, quiet, and connectedness um, where you have a full presence is very different than techniques that I've used in the past, which to me are much more directive, they're instructive, they're cognitive, so they involve a lot of thinking, a lot of doing. This is in many ways the opposite of that, and in some ways it resonates even better. Um, you know, I have uh, distance runners who talk about finding the state of mindfulness while they're running, that peaceful place of quiet and presence where they're responding to events as they occur rather than having these mental exercises to try to put themselves in the right frame mm-hmm. of mind or to be thinking in a certain manner which I think works for some people but I like the idea of being connected to yourself in a way where all you're doing is responding you're trusting your instincts you're allowing all of the collected experiences of the past to work almost unconsciously to support your performance rather than making this deliberate exercise. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so interesting. And I wish we had more time. Uh, we unfortunately are out of time for, for talking for today. But thank you so much, Dan, for sharing these perspectives. It's so interesting to, yeah. to hear about your work and um, and to get your perspectives. Yeah, I feel like I have like 100 more questions. I know. <laughs> oh, well, it's really been my, my pleasure. I always appreciate when someone cares enough to know what I think, so I appreciate the time, <laughs> and uh, I wish you well with your podcast. This is a good thing, and I'm grateful to all the people who took the time to listen right. and for your time as well. Thank you. Thank you. And again, no pressure, but um, if you would like to let people know a way they can connect with you or find you if they have questions for you, uh, you have a website, I know, for your practice. I don't know if you want to mention mention the site. Yeah, the easiest thing to do is just to go online and type in my name, uh, Daniel Zimet, Z-I-M-E-T. Uh, my practice is in Columbia, Maryland, and 
that'll pop up a bunch of things and hopefully all of them are G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Dan. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, just want to remind you as well that you can connect with us uh, through our MSPE website, mindfulsportperformance.org. Uh, we also have a MSPE Facebook page, and you can follow me, uh, Dr. Keith Kaufman, on Twitter. My handle is at MindfulSportDoc. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Taylor Brown, our producer from University of Texas at Austin, and of course our colleague, Dr. Carol Glass. Uh, so thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.